Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Grace Church. As, uh, as Crystal said, if you're new, if you're a guest, uh, we're so glad you're here. Uh, my name is Kevin. If we've never met before, I'm one of the pastors on staff. I also want to say welcome to those of you who are watching online as well. We're glad to have you with us too. So as we get started this morning, a couple, couple poll questions for you guys. The first question is this. Uh, by a show of hands, how many of you have ever been to a sporting event where they either threw or fired t-shirts into the crowd? Show of hands. How many of you guys have ever been to one of those? Okay, good number of you guys. So I was at a Cavs game a few years back, and it was fan appreciation night. I don't know if you've ever been to a, a fan appreciation night at the Cavs game. Uh, and what happens at those events is they literally give away like thousands of things. And so there were all sorts of raffles for t-shirts. The, the dance team was throwing t-shirts into the crowd. They even had t-shirts that were like hooked to these mini parachutes, and they were dropping them from the rafters. So you'd just be like watching the game, and you'd see them like falling like little army men were falling from the sky. And of course, then they had the classic t-shirt launcher guy who was just like firing them off far into the upper deck. Those things are getting stronger and stronger. As you can see, this is like a, I don't even know what this is. It is a massive one that can like seriously launch these t-shirts. And so they must have given away over a thousand t-shirts that night. And let me just tell you guys, I did not get a single one of them. I did not get a single t-shirt at that event. Uh, so my follow-up question is this, for those of you who raised your hands before, how many of you have ever actually caught a t-shirt? All right, so a handful. Last night, there were, I think, two people. So a handful of you guys, you've actually got one of those. And so, uh, so I have been to Cavs games and Browns games and Guardians games. I've been to college football games and college volleyball games and college soccer games. I've been to high school games. And in all of those events, over all of my years, I've never caught a T-shirt. And I've always wanted to, but for whatever reason, I've never got one except for one time. There was one event, and I've been trying to remember this past week what event it was and how I got it. I don't think it was from a, a t-shirt launcher, but at one event, I finally got a t-shirt, and here's what I remember very distinctly is I got the shirt, and I was super excited right over all those years. This was finally my moment. I finally got one, and so I get it, and I open it with joy only to realize the shirt is like three times too big for me, and it doesn't fit anyways, and so right, I think you could have probably fit two of me in this t-shirt. It was so big. Now, in defense of whatever sporting event I got it at and whoever put on that event, they have no idea who's going to be on the receiving end of the t-shirt cannon, right? They don't know that. They're just picking shirts. They stick them in. And they don't know if a small child or an NFL lineman is going to receive this shirt. And so they just, they pick like an XL and they just stick in the thing and they just start firing it off into the crowd. And for some people, uh, the shirt's going to be too small. And for other people, the shirt's going to be too big. And for a handful of you who you happen to be the size that they choose, then the shirt fits just right. And so I was kind of thinking back on that experience this week. And I realized that we live in a world that just does this from time to time, right? We live in a world that will often try to take a one-size-fits-all approach to things. And so maybe you have bought a product online and it said one-size-fits-all and you received it. And then you vehemently disagreed with their assessment that one size actually fits all. Or uh, maybe you had a coach in high school who only knew one way to coach, coach. And even though some kids and people learn, have different learning styles, this coach, they coached one way. And for some kids, it worked great. And for other kids, it worked horribly. And it didn't matter because this coach, they had a one size fits all to their coaching approach. Maybe you guys feel this a little bit in the political arena we don't have a one-size-fits-all uh, system, but we have a two-size-fits-all system, right? And we're basically given two options, and you have to fit neatly and cleanly into one of those two things when you vote. And if you don't, well, tough luck. That is the system that we have. And I think sometimes people take this approach because it's the only way they know how to do something. And other times, I think they do it because it's simply the more efficient way of doing something, right? If you are selling or making a product, it is far easier 
and far simpler to make it one way than to customize it for every individual person who might choose to buy it. And so uh, regardless of why they do it, though, the reality is that we just live in a world that will sometimes try to fit everyone into a one-size-fits-all approach. And so right now we find ourselves in a series in the book of Acts where we are broken it down into three parts, into the message, the mission, and the method. And so right now we find ourselves in the section on the method, and here's the question that we're going to attempt to answer today. It's this. It's can we take a one-size-fits-all approach to sharing the message of Jesus. So for followers of Jesus who desire to share that message, is the gospel, is the good news about Jesus something that we can put into a t-shirt cannon and just kind of fire off into the crowd regardless of who is on the receiving end of it? Or, or is this message something that actually needs to adapt or change based on who's on the receiving end of it? And this question is actually a controversial question in certain parts of Christianity. And the word that they use to talk about this issue is this. It's the word contextualization. Contextualization. Does either the message of the gospel or the delivery of it change based on the context in which it is in? Whether that be different cultures or different eras or different people groups. So that's where we're headed this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to the book of Acts chapter 17, Acts 17. If you don't have one, there's one in the seat back in front of you and you can see we're on page 899. Now, if you've been with us here over the past few weeks, you know that we've been working our way through uh, some of the different speeches that we find in the book of Acts, trying to see what patterns, if any, might develop. And so a few weeks ago, Pastor Tony talked about the fact that one of the patterns that we see is that at the core of the message of the gospel is not a lesson on morality, or tips on how to be a good person, but what we find at the core of the gospel is actually the resurrection of Jesus. It's the reality that Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross, and that three days later, he actually rose from the dead. And then last week, Colin talked specifically about the Old Testament and the good news of Jesus and how those two things intertwine and fit together, that those are not two separate things, but they actually build on each other, that there is one unified story that God is telling throughout the scriptures. And Colin showed us speech after speech after speech where the author started from and quoted from the Old Testament as the basis and the foundation of their message about Jesus. So this week, what I wanna do is I wanna focus on a speech that we find uh, the Apostle Paul giving in Acts chapter 17. And then I wanna compare and contrast that speech to some of the other speeches that we have already looked at. Now, the context of Acts 17 is this. So at the start of chapter 17, we find that Paul is sharing the gospel in a city called Thessalonica. And some of the Jewish people there, they start to get upset. They start to get jealous because these people, they are converting, right? Paul is convincing them about Jesus. They are leaving the Jewish religion. They are starting to follow Jesus. And so these Jews, they get upset about this. They actually form a mob and they start a riot in the city, right? And so this riot breaks out. And so in the middle of the night, Paul and his companion Silas, they sneak out of that city and they go to a nearby city called Berea. But the the people in Thessalonica who are upset, they catch wind of this and they say, this guy just went to the city right over there and he's doing the same thing. So they actually follow him there and they stir up more people and another, uh, right, more trouble starts brewing in Berea, right? And so Paul is again running for his life. And so that's, we're going to pick up our story. Uh, starting in, in again, Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 13. We read this. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, 
Some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas, Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So Paul gets escorted to Athens to flee from this mob so that he can lay low. And the plan is that his two buddies, Silas and Timothy, that they're going to hopefully join him shortly. But in the meantime, in the meantime, it seems as if his job, his plan is to keep a low profile so that his mob doesn't like keep following him from city to city. They don't keep chasing after him. So they're like, hey, Paul, you go lie low for a little bit. And the plan will be, we'll sneak your friends out. They'll come join you as soon as things calm down and it's okay and we can get them off to you. So that's the plan. But check out what Paul does next. Verse 16, we read this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. And so Paul is escorted to Athens again, presumably with the plan, hey Paul, lay low so they don't follow you again. But while he's waiting there, he starts walking around and he sees that the city is full of idols everywhere he looks. And the text tells us that this greatly distressed Paul, right? Like again, the plans to lay low, but something happens. He sees these idols, it starts to distress him. And the word that uh, Luke uses in the original language is this, it's paroxuno, which means to be provoked, to be made jealous, to be upset, to be distressed, or to be angered, right? And so Paul, he's waiting for his friends. He sees all of these false gods, and there is something inside him that is moved and that compels him, I have to say something. And so maybe an example of this that some of you guys can relate to would be this. So let's say you're visiting at a friend's house. Maybe it's just over for dinner. Maybe you're at Life Group and you're sitting there talking to them. And as you're talking to them, you, you notice that the picture on the wall behind them is like slightly crooked, right? Like not like way off enough to be crazy, but just like a teeny bit off, just enough to bother you. And so for some of you in the room, some of you wouldn't notice that and you don't even care about that. But there's others of you in the room that would paroxino you, right? That would do something to you. There's something inside you. They're like, I don't even know what they're saying and I can't listen until I get up and I go fix that picture, right? You would literally be like, hang on a second. You'd get up, you'd go straighten their picture and then you could continue the conversation, right? Now, I, I was sharing this with my wife and I said, so I could make all of my notes for the rest of the day like this. And she's like, you cannot do that to people. She said, that is mean and cruel. And so for those of you who are paroxinoed right now, I'm going to relieve your tension and now you can focus again, okay? There's a lot of you in the room. There we go, all right. So if you can get that idea in your mind, right? That is what Paul was like when he was seeing their idols, right? It's like he cannot help himself. There is something inside of him that compelled him. He's like, I have to fix this. I have to do something 
about this and it didn't matter to him what the circumstances were or the cost or how this might affect him, Paul was gonna talk about Jesus. And so instead of laying low, he decides to talk to more and more people. And Luke tells us specifically that Paul talks with four different groups of people and says he talks with Jews, with God-fearing Greeks, which were non-Jewish people who had adopted the Jewish religion. There were Epicureans and there were Stoic philosophers. So we're gonna come back to those four different groups in a moment, but the reason we're looking at this passage today is because this makes for a great case study to answer our question about contextualization. And so Paul talks with these different groups of people, and the result of Paul having these conversations is that Paul gets brought before something called the Areopagus. And the the Areopagus was basically a court in Athens that made judgments over religious and moral decisions. And so this isn't the type of court where a criminal gets, gets brought before to stand trial for stealing something. This is more of a religious court that served as kind of a gatekeeper to the city of Athens. And so Paul gets up, he's brought before these gatekeepers of religion. He gets up before this thing called the Areopagus. And here's what Paul says. Here's Paul's speech in Acts 17. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed, Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. And so I said at the beginning, one of the things that I want to do is I want to take this speech in Acts 17 and I want to compare it to some of the other speeches that we've already looked at in the book of Acts. And the moment you do that, one of the things that you quickly realize is that this speech is very different. And so if you remember back in Acts chapter 2, Peter is giving a speech and he immediately starts by quoting prophecy from the Old Testament. And then you skip forward to Acts chapter three, Peter is again giving a speech, and again, he starts by quoting from the Old Testament. In Acts chapter seven, which Colin unpacked last week, Stephen, he gives a speech, and he walks him through a lengthy discourse covering the storyline of, again, the Old Testament. And so it seems as if the pattern is starting to develop. Hey, if you're gonna share the message of Jesus with people, you need to start by laying this foundation from the Old Testament. This is the pattern. It's happening over and over and over. And then here comes Paul ready to give his speech and he doesn't say a word about the Old Testament, right? 
In fact, instead of quoting Old Testament scripture to make his case for Jesus, Paul starts talking about an unknown God and he even quotes worldly poets and philosophers of his day, right? And so this starts to make us ask some questions. What are we supposed to do with this? Is Paul bending to culture? Is Paul softening the message to make it less offensive? Is he watering down the gospel so maybe he'll get better results? And maybe who, why is Paul's message so different than the other guys, right? And who's right? Are Peter and Stephen right for starting with the Old Testament? Or is Paul right for weaving in these poets and philosophers from their culture? And so in order to make sense of all this, I thought an analogy might be helpful. And so I want you guys to imagine for a moment that you get asked the question, how do you get to Cedar Point? Right, you get asked the question, how do you get to Cedar Point? And for many of us in the room who live in East, Northeast Ohio, you think, okay, This is an easy one. I'm used to this place. I've been there before. I can do this. And so you would say maybe something like this. You'd say, well, you take 71 North and then you go West on the turnpike until you get to route two, right? And you'd kind of walk them through the various directions. And then you'd say, well, you end at one Cedar Point Drive, Sandusky, Ohio, right? That's the address. That is how you get to Cedar Point. And if I were listening into your conversation, I would look at you and I would say, you know what? I've been there before and that's right. That is exactly how you get to Cedar Point. If you live in Medina, Ohio. But if you live in Chicago, the directions to get to Cedar Point are very different, right? If you live in Chicago and you take the turnpike west, you're gonna find it very difficult to get to Cedar Point. And so the reality is if you're gonna give someone really good directions, you need to know more than just the destination. If you wanna give someone good directions, you also need to know where they are starting from. And so while the location of Cedar Point is fixed, while the address of Cedar Point is never, I think, going to change, the directions on how to get there and those details are very different depending on where it is you are starting from. And so if you go back to Paul's speech in Acts 17, I think that this is what Paul recognizes. Paul recognizes that you cannot share and explain the gospel to Epicureans and Stoic philosophers the same way you would share it to a Jewish audience because those audiences are starting in very different places. And so the speeches that we find in Acts 2 and Acts 3 and Acts 7, the ones that we have all looked at, what they all have in common is they are all being given to a primarily Jewish audience. And because they are all Jewish, there are some assumptions the speaker can make about their shared belief system. And so if you were to look at the Jewish belief system, you would find out that the Jews are theists, meaning simply that they are not atheists. That means they do believe in a God. They believe in a God. They have that starting point. And more than that, they are monotheists, meaning they believe in one God, as opposed to a polytheist who believes in multiple gods. You'd also find out that they have a a deep uh, rooted belief in the Old Testament. And so if you're trying to talk to someone who is Jewish about Jesus, uh, you don't need to convince them that the Old Testament is true. They already believe that to the core of their being. Because they believe that, they also believe that God is personal, that he's someone they can pray, that they can talk to, that God interacts with them. And they actually also believe in a Messiah who was to come. So again, if you're trying to convince them that Jesus is who he says he was, you don't have to convince them that a Messiah is coming. They already believe that. They're just not so sure if Jesus is that person. And so because Peter and Stephen know this about their audiences, 
this is where they start from, and this is where they make their case from, right? Because their audiences are Jewish, they decide to start with what everyone already agrees upon, which was the Old Testament. They start there, and then they do their best to point them to Jesus from that point. And so in Acts 17, we find Paul doing the exact same thing. And so in verse 17, which we already looked at, we see that he is reasoning in the synagogue with both the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. And so to the audiences who, were, who shared the Jewish belief system, we're told that Paul does the same thing that Peter and Stephen does. And you see it here in verse 17 and back, and also in 17 verse two, it says that Paul reasons with them from the scriptures. It says that he starts with the Old Testament and he points them to Jesus. But while Paul is doing this, while he is having this conversation, we read that two different groups of people with two very different, entirely different belief systems also engage in the discussion. And the text tells us they are confused and they do not understand what Paul is trying to say. Look back at verse 18. It says a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say, right? They don't understand. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. Right, they are confused. They are not tracking with Paul because they don't have the knowledge of the Old Testament that the other groups had, right? And so while the Jews believe this, here's, here's what the Epicureans believe. They believe that God is remote, right? That God is like distant. He is off somewhere that he doesn't actually interact with humanity. They also believe that the world is due to chance, right? Because God isn't like intervening in human affairs. Well, then how do things happen? What's just all due to chance? It's just the way it works out. They don't believe in an afterlife because they don't believe in an afterlife and they believe that God is uninvolved. Therefore, there's really no judgment. We don't have to worry about that. And so their conclusion based on those things is, well, we should pursue pleasure. This life is all there is. So you should just get what you can out of it. Enjoy what you can. And, and this is the way the world works, right? That's what the Epicureans believe. Very different than what the Jews believe. You look at the Stoic philosophers, they also believe that there is one supreme God, but they weren't so convinced that he was knowable right? And so they had more of a pantheistic view, which is a little hard to explain, but it's kind of the idea that God is like in everything, that he's not like one central person, but he's kind of like part of the world and the fabric of the world. And so again, which goes into why he's not knowable because he's kind of in everything. Um, now, because God is in everything, they thought that everything was, was determined. So the exact opposite of the Epicureans where the world is due to chance, they think everything is determined by fate because God is in everything and he has predetermined everything. And so their conclusion is, well, we must pursue duty, right? Because if, you, if your life isn't going how you want, well, God has predetermined that. It is fixed. There's nothing you can do about it. So you just kind of suck it up and you, got, you just got to play your part, right? That is the way that the world works, right? And because these are their current belief systems, Paul chooses to start his conversation with them in a very different place. Instead of starting with the Old Testament, Paul starts with their idols. Specifically, Paul talks about one of their idols that is labeled an unknown God. And basically what he says is this. He says, I can see by walking around your city that you have many questions about who God is and what he is like. He says, so today, 
I'm here to help you answer those questions. I'm gonna tell you who this unknown God is. And we don't, have every time, every, we don't have time to get into every aspect of it, but if you start to really break down Paul's speech, he is carefully speaking into and addressing so many of the specific belief systems to the people that he was talking to. As I was studying this past week, I thought a guy by the name of John Stott, he summarized it really well. He said it like this. He said to oversimplify was characteristic of the Epicureans to emphasize chance, escape, and the enjoyment of pleasure. And of the Stoics to emphasize fatalism, submission, and the endurance of pain. In Paul's later speech to the Areopagus, we hear echoes of the encounter between the gospel and these philosophies, as he refers to the caring activity of a personal creator, the dignity of human beings as his offspring, the certainty of judgment, and the call to repentance. One cannot help admiring Paul's ability to speak with equal facility to religious people in the synagogue, to casual passers-by in the city square, and to highly sophisticated philosophers, both in the Agora and when they met in council. And what is Paul doing? I think that Paul is doing his best to not just fire off XL t-shirts into the crowd. I think he is doing his best to give these different audiences a custom set of directions that clearly point them to and help them make sense of Jesus. But notice what he also does. He never changes the address, right? The core message that he is giving is exactly the same. And so in verse 18, we're, we're told that he is preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. In verse 30, he again calls them to repent. And in verse 31, he again points them to Jesus and the resurrection. And so just because the Athenians were starting in a very different place doesn't mean that Paul changed or watered down the gospel in any way. Paul was still boldly declaring the same core message. He's still preaching about their sin and their need to repent. He is still preaching about the forgiveness that's only found in Jesus, and he is still preaching about the resurrection. Paul just cared enough to actually give them, take the time to give them a custom set of directions on how to get there. And so as I was kind of reflecting on all this this past week, just processing through all the stuff that I was reading in Acts 17, there were, there were a handful of questions that I felt like God was just putting into my mind that, uh, that I think he was honestly challenging me personally on. And so with the rest of our time, I just wanna kind of walk you through those questions. I, I've whittled it down to three of them um, and then we'll, we'll close out there. So three, three questions and the questions of the first one's this. Do the idols of our culture greatly distress you? Do the idols of our culture greatly distress you, right? So as we talked about when the Apostle Paul is walking around the city of Athens, he sees these idols everywhere and it does something to him, right? It, it, it impacted him, it distressed him. Uh, and so when he sees the, the people of Athens, when they are putting their hope in things that are certain to let them down, there is something inside Paul that says, there's a compassion that wells up that says, I cannot just sit here and do nothing when I see what's going to happen to them, right? He is paroxunod, he is distressed, he is compelled. And so the question that I have honestly been asking myself this week is do the idols of our culture greatly distress me, right? Do they distress us? Do they distress you? When we move about our neighborhoods or the places we work, and we see the various objects of worship or the different things in which our culture tends to put their hope, that they're leaning on, that they're trusting in. Does it distress you? 
Does it cause a compassion to well up inside of you and say, oh my gosh, I can't not say something. I need to help them. I think one of the challenges for us is that many of the, the idols of our culture, they don't take the form of little golden statues that are easy just to like pick on and point out. And so because they tend to look more like things like money or power or self-image or, or parts of the American dream, because it tends to look like those sorts of things, um, I think it's super easy to become numb to them or to forget about them. And in some cases, even we subtly start worshiping them ourselves. And so we're not distressed by them because we're also kind of pursuing them. And I think it would have been super easy for Paul to walk around the city of Athens and just take in the sights and eat some food and lay low like that was the plan. That would have been so easy for him to do that. But he just couldn't. Right, when he saw people who he, he knew their destination and he knew the things they were leaning into were gonna let him down, he was like, I, I just can't do nothing. I have to say something. And so again, the question I've been asking myself this week is, man, do I feel the same way? And if I don't, why not? What is it that's not causing that reaction to me? Because I think that if that's you, like it is for me at times, I think there's something there and it's worth, it's worth digging into. So that's our first question which led me to the next question, which is this. It's, can you give people directions to Jesus? Right, so if the, if the answer to the first question is yes, if you are compelled to share the hope of Jesus with people, then the next follow-up question is, well, do I actually have the ability to do that even if I want to? And so, as we mentioned earlier, the starting point to giving anyone directions is that you have to know the address. But if you don't know the address, you cannot give people directions anywhere, which means we must have absolute clarity on what the gospel is, which never changes and spans all cultures and all people of all times. So at the core of the gospel message, here's some truths that are at the core. It's that all people are sinful and have a broken relationship with God. The Bible says that the wages or the penalty of our sin is death. It says that Jesus lived a sinless life and paid for the penalty of our sin by dying on the cross. It says that Jesus offers forgiveness and a restored relationship to those who will repent and put their faith in him. And it says that the resurrection both proves these things to be true and, and it points to our new and future life with him. Right? These things, these are core truths at the center of the gospel that do not change regardless of the time, the era, the culture. These things are fixed. Pastor Tony uh, often sums it up like this. He says, we are far more messed up than we think we are, but we are also more loved than we could possibly imagine. And these things that are up here, these things are probably a little oversimplistic and there are more layers than that and there is more depth than that and it's far more relational than that. But again, on a base level, these things are fixed. They are not going to change. And sharing these truths with someone, and this is always helpful, but historically, sometimes the church has taken these things, we've left it at that, we've stuck them in our t-shirt launch and we've just fired them off into the crowd and not considered who's on the receiving end of it. Even though this is a good thing, sometimes, again, we can fail to see the person and the individual who is receiving it. And so if you wanna give someone the most helpful and complete set of directions possible, then you have to know where they're starting from. You have to care enough to actually get to know them and to know their beliefs and their background and the unique things and questions that they have about Jesus. 
And the starting point of that is simply listening. It's listening to their story. It's asking them questions about why they believe what they believe and allowing that truth or allowing their thoughts to enter into your brain before you just start firing stuff off at them. And if I could just share an observation, I, I think from my vantage point, it sure seems as if our culture is increasingly more like the audience in Acts 17, meaning they don't necessarily have a, a, a working knowledge of the Bible and they are less like the culture in Acts chapter two where they were thoroughly knowledgeable about the Bible. In general, I think people are growing up less and less church, which again means that they might not believe in things like God's existence or in sin or in truth. And that doesn't mean that something is wrong with them. It just means that they don't have that background. And it doesn't mean they don't wanna know Jesus or they aren't interested in knowing Jesus. It simply means if you wanna help them, you're gonna have to listen. You're gonna have to acknowledge that they might be starting in a very different place from where some of you might be starting from. And I think the better we do this and the better we are willing to listen, the more helpful we can actually be in helping other people make sense of Jesus. So question number two is, can you give people directions to Jesus? Here's the third one. Can you share your story? Can you share your story? So if question number two of that is overwhelming to you, if you find yourself thinking, I'm not smart enough to do that, there are too many questions that I don't know the answer to, I could never give someone complete directions, then if that's you, I would have two responses to you. The first one is gonna be the coach in me and will seem a little less compassionate. And then I'll give you the second one. Right? And so the first one is this, if you feel like question number two overwhelms you, then do something about it. Then go get equipped. Don't just say, hi, oh, right, like you have access to so many things that can equip you so that you can do that really, really well, right? Take the what is the Bible course, take the disciple making course. If you feel like you need more training, it is available to you, go get it. But here's the second thing I would say. I would tell you, you don't need to have all the answers, and in fact, you are never going to have all of the answers. And so the second thing I would say is, well, just tell them your story, right? Just share your story with them because your story is always in context. Your story is a complete set of directions of where you started and how you came to know and follow Jesus. And because it's a complete set of directions, it's helpful. I love how the apostle Peter put it in one of his letters. We read this a few weeks ago. Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but to do this with gentleness and respect. And the reason I love that passage is because Peter doesn't say always be prepared to give an answer to every single question someone might ask you. It doesn't say you have to be prepared to explain every nuance of the Christian faith. He simply said be prepared to give an answer for the reason, for the hope that you have, right? Why have you put your hope in Jesus? Be prepared to do that, right? He says you should be prepared to share your faith with someone. You can just talk to your neighbor and say, hey, this is my story. This is how I grew up. This is how I was raised. This is why I chose to follow Jesus. This is why I'm still following Jesus. And again, if you're a follower of Jesus, whatever your story is, it's a complete set of directions and it's always helpful. And so as we close out, I just wanna, I wanna close by saying this. I, we recognize that some of you in the room here, you are not a follower of Jesus. And man, we are, and some of you watching online, you're in the same place. And uh, we count it as such a blessing 
that you are here and that you would consider to, to make us part of your weekend and allow us to even speak into this conversation with you. We recognize that your story is unique and it is different, and uh, that means that you're starting in a different place from everyone else. We're all different on that. We also uh, acknowledge when we're walking through this story that maybe you relate to the Athenians. Maybe that you are the reason you're here. You're obviously, you're searching for something and maybe you have an unknown God. You're like, I know he's there. I know he's out there, but I, man, I have so many questions and I'm, I'm just not quite sure who he is. And if that's you, I just, I just wanna say as clear as I can that I, I would agree with the Apostle Paul and to the core of my being, the unknown God that you're searching for. He has a name and his name is Jesus. And we would invite you to consider stepping in and embracing him as your Lord and Savior. So I'm gonna pray with us and then the band's gonna lead us out. Father, you are good. We are so grateful for who you are. God, if there is anyone here today or who is watching online who doesn't know you yet, God, man, we're, we're grateful they're here and we're just gonna ask that you would speak into their lives now, that you would help them work through their questions and give us wisdom if they ask us questions. And God, we just, we wanna be helpful. We wanna make you make sense. So God, if there's anyone who's searching for you, God, I would pray that uh, in the same way you did this to Paul, that you would paroxino them, that you would, you would distress them, that you would put something inside of them that just compels them to move and to take that step of faith to you. And God, for the rest of us in the room who are followers of Jesus, God, would you, would you do the same for us? Would you well up inside of us a compassion and a love and a burden for the people of the world around us that compels us to move, not out of guilt or out of shame, but because, God, we care so much about our fellow man that we want to point them to you. God, give us courage to step into those moments and help us guide our words when we don't know what to say. God, we know you're good. We know you love us. We're so grateful. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.